how many relationships do you have? And how would you describe each of those relationships? Professional relationships, friendly relationships, casual relationships. In this episode of the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast, we're going to learn about developmental relationships. And it was my honor to share a conversation with Kent Pakel, the president and CEO of Search Institute, an internationally recognized not-for-profit organization that for over 70 years has been successfully accomplishing something that unfortunately is quite uncommon, bringing together research and practice, which Kent refers to as applied research that is proven to support young people to be their best selves and to continue being their best selves and growing into their best selves. Of course, that's what we're all committed to achieving, which is why I was certain you'd appreciate learning about a resource that can support you in your efforts. And that's what this episode is all about. Hello, I am Nini White, and it is with greatest appreciation that I welcome you to this episode, which to date is the longest episode I've ever uploaded. And it was difficult to stop when we did. You may want to take notes for this episode or listen twice as I did. Kent Pakel, thank you for finding the time. Uh, we have been a couple of months in trying to plan this conversation, and we are finally here, and I am so grateful. I, well, I'm grateful, too, and I'm grateful that you were both uh, patient and we both were persistent because um, I love the podcast, and we have folks at Search Institute who are regular listeners um, who put it on my radar screen, and so I have been, look, been looking forward to the chance to connect. Wow, that's good news. Thanks for telling me that. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So I, uh, speaking of, uh, I guess we have a mutual um, appreciation thing going here because I spent uh, uh, hours going through your website, the website for Search Institute, and was so impressed by the research and the feet on the ground application of so much of what you're researching. So it seems like you go way beyond theory and ideals, but you go to practical feet on the ground application. So I want to hear about your research, how you conduct it, whatever you think is important for us and how you apply it. So, Yeah, I mean, that's the key word uh, is applied. We really consider ourselves an applied research organization, mm -hmm. which is not to say that we don't conduct research. We do and we get funding from the National Science Foundation and the Institute for Education Sciences and the Spencer Foundation and other, other people who are at the top of the food chain in terms of funding for research. Mm -hmm. And we publish studies in peer-reviewed journals and things like that. Mm -hmm. But as a nonprofit that's committed to applied research, every single project is designed in partnership with organizations that um, serve kids and families and communities. And it's always intended to help them improve outcomes for young people. And so mm -hmm. we are on both sides of the research and practice fence, and we like it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, and our current work is all on developmental relationships in, in kids' lives. And I'm sure we'll dig into what that uh, means in practice and what we're learning from the research. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is 100% relevant to social emotional learning of, of kids. Is there any age group of kids that you focus on or is it full range? It actually has a, a connection back to the, the methods of research. We um, believe and we have evidence to show that um, developmental relationships, and I'm, I know we're going to talk about what that means, are relevant across the life course from early childhood through um, the early elementary years into adolescence. Um, because a lot of our research utilizes quantitative surveys or questionnaires as one key method in our work, um, it's very tough to get little kids to mm. uh, fill out surveys <laughs> and questionnaires. Mm. Um, and we've actually tried. Um, and so a lot of our quantitative research focuses on adolescence. Mm -hmm starting about middle school and extending up, but we do have projects that have focused on early childhood and the elementary years. And there's no reason to believe that developmental relationships are any less important in those early years. If anything, they're more important, oh, yeah. although they're different, although they're different. Mm -hmm. um, 
And as you mentioned, social emotional learning, um, one of the things that our studies are showing is that um, one of those powerful ways to strengthen young people's social emotional competencies is through building developmental relationships with them in the home, in schools, and in um, out of school time programs and other youth programs. We've, we've shown conclusively that when um, the relationships uh, are truly developmental in those settings, kids are more likely to be motivated, empathic, to be good decision makers, good problem solvers, all the stuff that a lot of us are after under that focus on social emotional learning or life skills. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of a little bit predictable, but also in some ways counterintuitive because a lot of the early discussion and emphasis on social emotional learning has focused on programs. And there's good evidence that SEL programs can uh, improve social emotional competencies what our work is showing is that in, in some ways, those competencies are better, better caught than taught and that they can be <laughs> caught through a, they can be caught through a relationship um, in a way that really has powerful transformative um, implications for kids development. Okay. I love that, that it can be taught rather than taught. I think that's very profound and very practical as I was a teacher for over 20 years and I definitely uh, functioned according to that principle. Um, and so I think I want to go back and have you define developmental because I'm sure we all have our own uh, definition for that. What, what are you using as a definition? In some ways, it's a little bit easier because, you know, pretty much I'm sure anybody listening to your podcast and frankly, a lot of people just anywhere would say, OK, that's a no brainer. You don't need to tell me that relationships really matter in kids lives. Right. But then when you when you push a bit deeper, you say, OK, what does it take to build that kind of a relationship that actually um, is propulsive for a young person that helps them kind of go from you know point A to point B, whether it's mastering a skill or persevering through trauma? And part of the problem is even though research has had a lot to say about what that looks like, there have been very few clear, simple frameworks that extend from research into practice mm -hmm. to help us basically understand what is what makes a relationship developmental. Uh, and so the first thing that probably all of us think, think about kids in relation is the experience of expressing care. And that makes complete sense. The old saying that people don't care what you know until they know what that you care is emphatically being proved true in our research. But if yeah. the goal is to have it be a developmental relationship, one that is propulsive in a kid's life, caring is, is necessary, but not sufficient. And so that leads to four mm -hmm. other really critical elements that have emerged from our work. And those four are very quickly, and we can, we can go through and go deeper into each of them um, if you want to. A challenging growth, providing support, sharing power, and expanding possibilities. And what we are finding is when kids experience with a, uh, relationships with adults that are characterized by um, high levels of those elements, high levels meaning they're experienced either intensively or often or both, all those outcomes are better, the risk behaviors are lower, um, and they're just much more likely to be on a path to thrive. And so that's why we are trying to take um, data and practical strategies and tools for bringing those five elements to life and put them in the hands of teachers, parenting adults, youth workers, um, increasingly people in, in systems that are new to us, like the juvenile justice system, probation officers, group home managers, case managers, um, anybody who is interacting with kids in a setting where um, we, we hope and need those young people to make progress. Mm-hmm. It's, it's making me think, for one thing about as a parent, it's not enough to just love your kids. Um, and as a parent, I was a better teacher than I was a parent. This is my, uh, oh, that's one of the reasons, yeah, I, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm here now doing this podcast because I'm wanting to learn and share with people who maybe made some of the uh, wrong assumptions as I did. And I love those other elements. They make so much sense because kids, even very young ones, when they are seen, when they are seen to be capable, when they are seen to be someone who needs to be expanded to get some responsibility for outcomes, which I'm changing the words of what you're saying, but it seems like all of that is extremely important to what you're saying. And that's when the real growth happens and the self uh, responsibility and self-motivation happens. 
Yeah, and one of the things that it's important to say as fairly soon after I tick off that framework, and if you go to our website, underneath each of those five big elements are very specific actions that mm. um, that comprise that. So we could, um, well, I, I actually should give an example. So expressing yes. expressing care, we'll take the most familiar one, is a combination of five distinct actions. Being dependable for kids. Second is is listening, really paying attention to them. Uh, the third is believing in them, making them feel known and valued. The fourth is being warm, showing you enjoy being with them, including non-verbally. And then the fifth is encouraging them, uh, praising them for their efforts and achievements. And each of the five has got those actions that are underneath it. And sometimes people can hear about this, especially if, as you were, and as I was actually, um, a teacher where you have lots and lots of kids, you say, oh my God, how can I do all of those things for all of my students all the time? And the answer is you can't. And the good news is you don't need to. What mm -hmm. kids need is they need a regular experience of those elements over the course of their development. Right. And so right. it's not that all of us, even a parent, have to do all of those things all the time. But we know that kids right. need to experience them in, in some of the time. And that's one reason why, um, as our work evolves, it really started very, very tightly focused on the youth adult. And now increasingly, we're looking at environments in a school, in a program, um, to some extent in, in a family that actually surround kids with those kind of relational elements. Um, so we don't wanna make relationships seem impossible by making them uh, clearer. We wanna make this more, more doable. And one of the things that I find is pretty hopeful about it is that most of us want these kinds of connections with the kids in our lives, whether they're our own kids or the, the, the kids we work with. And when you take a framework like ours, it really just empowers you to be intentional in a way that you might yes. not if you didn't have it. And it's kind of like, it's almost like if you buy a new car, um, suddenly when you're driving around and you see the same make and model of your car, you're going to notice it um, because you just bought this new car and you have a new connection to like a Toyota Corolla. Well, it's not that the number of Toyota Corollas in the world magically increased and suddenly there's more of them. It's because you are looking for Toyota Corollas because you just spent money on one. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly you see things that you wouldn't have seen. And so when you have a framework like the one that uh, has emerged out of our research, you'll see opportunities to challenge growth or to share power or to express care or to expand possibilities that you might have missed um, because you have that frame and you also, we hope, have some practical tools that help you bring those elements to life. Right, absolutely. And the other thing is from the kids' side, when they see that you're that kind, you're relating to the kids in the class that way, maybe each kid doesn't get that individual hit of, of uh, you know, mm -hmm. developmental nourishment but they see that that's the person that you are and it's there intuitively they you know wordlessly they will get that this is the environment that I'm in even though you know it's not coming it's pointed at me every time so it's it is an environment I think you're making that point as well I think that's right the one thing though that's interesting just to stick with the, the school example um, okay uh, for a moment that we have found is that um you're absolutely right that you, you can't do it and you don't need to do it every time. You do need to make sure, though, that your relationship building efforts are not um, consciously or often um, unconsciously focusing on just the same subgroup of students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, almost every we just finished a longitudinal study of teacher student relationships and students academic motivation. And a lot of stuff emerged from it, um, including the fact that when kids experience the developmental relationships framework that I just described with their teachers, they're much more academically motivated in school, which also translates into, into better grades. Mm -hmm. um, but the, one of the things that emerged from that was very few teachers don't invest in relationships with some kids. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they're the kids who are actually the, not just the ones that you get along with, with most easily, but they're the ones that actually you, maybe, maybe they're the most struggling. So you put all this effort in. Um, the challenge though, is that if you're concentrating your relationship building efforts on, you know, sort of one subset of kids, um, the kids will know it and the kids feel it. And mm -hmm. so we, yeah. we, con we continually see this discrepancy when we have data, we collect data from 
both teachers and students, the teachers, when we ask them, are you bringing those five elements, expressing care, challenging growth, and the others to life in your work with kids, generally and understandably, and I'm sure I would have answered uh, the same way when I was a teacher, they say yes, and they, they give the relationships they build with students very, very high marks. When we have the students who are in mm -hmm. the same classes, the students of those teachers evaluate the relationship from their perspective, it's dramatically less uh, skewed to the positive. And sometimes right. that's really... Sometimes it's really painful uh, data for educators to look at, but the way we think about it is, especially because up to the point we show up and give people data on this kind of stuff, they've never seen it before. Um, are you as a school community trying to make sure every kid experiences a developmental relationship with somebody in the building over the course of their time in your school? And the answer is usually no, because relationships are something that we've just sort of happened to magically and organic, expected to kind of magically and organically happen. Um, and what we're saying is that just like you got to plan the curriculum and you got to plan the the budget and the discipline policy and um, the bus routes and all that other stuff, you actually have to plan for relationships. You actually mm -hmm. have to um, be intentional, both as an individual working with kids and as an organization. Um, and that when you do that, the good news is it's something that is within your power to influence. There's a lot of stuff that we'd like to change uh, in kids' lives, especially kids living in really challenging circumstances. Um, one thing we can change is the relationships they experience with us as adults. Yeah. Um, I love that. And I also, I, I will say that uh, I, you have me wondering now, but I feel like I did connect with all of my students. <laughs> now I'm getting on the defensive here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, it's hard not um, to. Yeah, no, I know. No, but it's interesting uh, stuff that you're revealing here. <clears throat> I, uh, the point I was trying to make, and I think I did it when I was teaching, was that because uh, the kids, they all seem to really enjoy my classes and do well in them. But I found that there were some kids, like they were like the, the, her the, the top of the tribe. What am I trying to say? The king of the herd or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if that kid could be brought on into the, the flow of things, even though he was the biggest troublemaker, Mm -hmm. then things would shift. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because I had quite a bit of success with that where I would look at everybody and get momentary eye contact and you see what's happening here and we're all, mm -hmm. oh boy, we're all, and having a good laugh together. Um, am I drifting, drifting too far apart from where you're, the point you're trying to make? No, I mean, for, of course, part of our work though is saying um, as a teacher, or as a uh, out of school time program staff person or a mentor or a parent. Um, while I don't doubt that you were actually, first of all, working really hard to connect relationally with your kids and that you felt that connection. Um, it's very difficult for us as adults to really know how the kid is experiencing that relationship because yeah. by definition we have a power differential and we also are, you know, usually except for kids who are highly oppositional, um, they want, do what we want them to do. Yes. Um, so I think that my first question would be, that's one reason why we think that this is, a, 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 you need data and you need research on yeah. these uh, relationships. So first of all, we know one of the people we were working with um, talked about avoiding the condition of adultism, where we're interpreting kids' experience of relationships with us just through the lens of the adults and oh. trying to understand it through the lens of the kids. And again, not defining a good relationship as simply one that's warm and fuzzy. It's a developmental relationship. Right. It's one that where you're going to push, and sometimes those are not warm and fuzzy. Um, right. But let's assume, let's assume, and I think um, knowing your podcast, uh, that it's probably that your judgment was probably uh, very accurate, and you were reading the room right in these relationships that you were building with your students. One of the things, though, that we've also found is very few schools identify the teachers or counselors or, you know, lunchroom staff or educational assistants, very few identify the ones who really are successful in building relationships with either all students or struggling students or fill in the gap, and then try and actually elevate their practice and learn from it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that's kind of what partly we're after here is that the, 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 the skills that um, people build um, 
or some people may just be born with um, in building relationships are deserving of attention as a practice and sharing as a practice. Mm -hmm. And so that um, for those 20 years that you were in the classroom and working to connect with those kids, um, an interesting question for you would be, did your principal or did any kind of a professional learning community ever try and actually say, well, Nini, tell us what you're doing and how you do that. And here's how some of your other colleagues are doing it. Um, so that you actually start to create a relational culture across the whole school. Um, our experience would suggest that very few have uh, done that up till now, but you know, um, 20 years ago, we didn't really talk about social emotional learning or social emotional skills. Right. And I think this is all part of a journey. I mean, it's my hope that just now, just as now we kind of know the, the term social emotional learning or SEL, that five or 10 years from now, the term developmental relationships or whatever we call it will be as widely understood and embraced and they're closely related but a bit a bit distinct and so um that's why we really welcome the chance to be on podcasts like this one to try and sort of get the word out absolutely and <clears throat> i think uh i don't mean to make them synonymous but i think that they're so interrelated and that's why it's called the big picture social emotional learning podcast because yeah. there's so many pieces that that really need to come together and be honored just uh, I've learned so much in this conversation with you. Um, did my principal um, get what I was doing? Uh, they saw that there weren't any less and less problems coming out of my classroom all the time. And by the end, there weren't any problems. And the kids were my friends. On, they asked me to be their friends on Facebook. So good things were happening. But I, I hear you that there were things that I was probably missing. Um, but I will say, and I don't mean this to be about me, but I'm just hoping that bringing up my doubts or my concerns or my mm -hmm. confidences will be something that listeners can relate to, is that a lot of, when I was in school, I had no teachers that made me feel any of those, uh, cared about any of my developmental progress. Mm. So I a lot of time as a teacher, most of the time, my motivation was to bring that into the class. So I was, uh, uh, yeah. So I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, Sometimes the, when you come of... from a deficit, then, mm -hmm. you know, you know what needs to be done. So what do you think about that? Well, one of the first activities we do when we start working with people um, in sort of a workshop or um, what we really like is to have the funding to work over a period of, you know, years with an organization but of course that's not always the case but one of the first things we do is we actually do an exercise where we have people think about the relationships that mattered in their own development through the lens of our framework although we don't introduce the framework at the time we just have an exercise where it's who cared about you who pushed you who gave uh, who helped you out who uh, who who made you who gave you voice and choice and who showed you new things in life and it um it's it's a very powerful experience. It's usually a lot of fun. People who don't know each other through that lens learn a lot about each other. So you might've been teaching together for 20 years, but you've never kind of right. heard that. Right. One, of the hard, one of the hard things we learn though, is that for some people, um, they do this exercise and it's like a worksheet um, uh, that we usually use if it's in a workshop that's like a person to person workshop. Um, some people don't have very many names on their sheets. Yeah. And I remember I was working with a, a school in Chicago, very high need school. And there was one woman sitting there and she was just staring at the paper and it was blank. And she said, I just didn't have anybody who did these things for me. And one of her colleagues said, how did you make it through then? And she just kind of said, I don't know. And, um, and, and first of all, this was not, sometimes we do these these hour, hour and a half long deep dive interviews with people. That's like, that's like um, what we call thick description of their development. That's not what this exercise is. And so I actually think if I had had more time with that woman one-on-one, -on -one, we could have gone deeper and really, really, really tried to see. Um, but for her in the moment, nothing was coming up. And so one of the things that we've really learned through this work is that while developmental relationships are unquestionably critical for kids' development, there's no magic number of them that uh, kids need or um, that is 100% correlated with sort of, you're gonna make it, you're not gonna you know, thrive. Um, and so we try and be cautious in seeming to um, overstate the causality at play with relationships. Mm. You know, relationships are necessary but not sufficient in kids' lives. Um, it, we don't want to suggest that, you know, if you have great relationships, but you're 
your school doesn't provide you with a high quality education or you're not physically safe in your neighborhood or you don't have enough to eat or you have unmet mental health needs that just the experience of a developmental relationship will counter all those things. Mm. But the converse is also true. You could have all of those other things. And if you are relationally disconnected, we, we just know your development will be impacted. And so we really are, are trying to make this work on developmental relationships of both and. Um, one of the analogies that we've used sometimes to describe developmental relationships is that it's like fluoride and toothpaste. It's like the active ingredient um, that if you don't have, or yeast in bread, if you don't have that active ingredient, um, you're missing the the, the thing in the recipe or the product uh, or the formula that brings the rest of it to life. Um, so that's one way sometimes we try and describe it. It doesn't mean that the other stuff that you do for kids is not critical because it is, but if you're not attentive to the relationship, you're missing that active ingredient. Oh, of course, of course. And I appreciate your, uh, your range of, and your perspective that, there's no one right answer for anybody or anything that which I mean we could go on this thread for a long time but I really wanted to bring out another element if you don't mind if I shift gears here that uh because I don't know when I can get you again although I'd really like to have many conversations with you about all these things that you've discovered um that I, I so much appreciate and respect that your research includes the inner development of youth by examining the impact of faith communities or spiritual development programs, but you don't seem to have any specific agenda in this dimension of kids' development. And I just, what would you like to tell us about that? It was very impressive to me because at first when I went to your website, I went, uh-oh, you know, that, that's going to narrow our conversation. I'm not sure I'm interested in that. But when it's this wide and this big, I, I'd really love to hear your perspective. We're actually just finishing our first really robust study of developmental relationships in faith-based communities. And Mm -hmm. it focused on faith-based communities across the United States, um, uh, mostly qualitative, meaning where you go and you interview people and you do focus groups, but there also is a quantitative aspect. And we're literally finishing the data analysis right now, but it looked at um, Christian Muslim and Jewish um, faith-based communities. And the key focus for us was not... um, it was not it was not religious in and of itself although obviously those communities are themselves religious and mm-hmm. many many of us at search institute may or may not happen to have personal uh, faith-based traditions the the focus for us in that study which we'll be releasing the findings of in the coming year really was our, how can these faith-based communities um, enhance young youth development so kids development including, However, that faith community defines spiritual development. Mm-hmm. We didn't bring we didn't bring a definition of that to the table, and these were very very different um, faith communities across mm-hmm. the country. Even within those three um, uh, denominations, they sure. were different kinds. Sure. And you know, not surprisingly, but we think uh, interestingly, what we found was that. Um, for many young people, these faith communities were really powerful sources of development. But there also were large subsets of young people in these churches, synagogues, and mosques uh, for whom the faith community was not particularly developmental. Um, But the good news in that finding was there's a lot that those communities could do to be more intentional about the relationships they build with kids. And the hypothesis coming out of that is that if they were more attentive to essentially youth development, Uh um, that um, they could reach a lot more kids than they are at present. It's essentially trying to take what we call a positive youth development approach to kids in faith-based communities. Um, whereas all of them with to varying degrees were more focused on you should learn the tenets of our uh-huh. faith. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the opportunity is we should develop you as a person. Um, and that, that's not to say divert the faith focus because those communities are dedicated to that but that if they actually took on a broader youth development emphasis Mm -hmm. to their work with kids, Mm -hmm. um, the young people themselves suggested that um, they frankly would, they'd they'd want to be there uh, even more than they did and that they could be even more powerful spaces for learning and development than they already are. I mean, that makes so much sense. That it just makes so much sense. And I love that you're, uh, 
doing this with numbers and facts and research and validating it. And it's, so it's something that most of us would just come to conclusion, oh, this is common sense, but you're, you're making it real. <laughs> We're trying, although that also, <laughs> that is a kind of a, um, a hazard of our work because one of the things we don't want to be is an organization that basically just puts some numbers behind things that everybody already knows. Um, we want to be, mm. we do want to, uh, help generate breakthrough knowledge and, you know, mm. new insights. And so that it's not just um, affirming the good work that many people are already mm. doing with kids, though we love it when we do that. We also want to, you know, add value to the work and contribute it in a way that um, helps move the needle forward for kids. So um, I appreciate that and agree with it that that a lot of our work does kind of confirm what people understand but we are um super super committed um not to stop at that i can just give you sort of one example of that when when you say to people well what's in a you know how to build a good relationship with a kid as i mentioned at the outset many people their mind doesn't go beyond expressing care mm -hmm. and and so I, we think our framework lends these other four critical elements to what the relationship is so there's one step that i think probably wasn't just what everybody knew but it but it but it gives them a mm -hmm. sense then when you take the analysis one step further what we're finding is that in most of the settings that we've examined schools families and out of school time programs the first two elements um, expressing care and challenging growth happen fairly frequently for most kids. Mm -hmm. um, but the last three, and especially the last two, happen far less for many, many kids, which are sharing power and expanding possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so what you see there are some very developmentally beneficial uh, relational elements that we could be much more focused on um, with good reason to believe that it really would benefit the kids we're working with. And so um, if you're a teacher or a youth worker or a parent um, and you're not thinking about, for instance, sharing power, we hope that our work would not only sort of flag the value of that, mm -hmm. but also provide you with some, some practical tools that would help you um, integrate it into your practice. So we're trying to affirm what people, the good work people are doing, and then also um, add value to it in a way that uh, gives them some light bulbs or at least some uh, exciting possibilities to think about. I think what I, thank you for that clarification. I think what I was actually trying to say, because sometimes we know things, but we don't own them. And mm. so everything that you're saying, all of those five areas for developmental uh, progress for kids, I think we all know them, but then you, you justify each one with your research, if I'm saying this clearly enough, mm -hmm. so that then we can own those facts rather than have it be, it's, it's something I should be doing more. It's just, you know, a sense of something that's right. But once it's, mm -hmm. it's validity is right in front of our faces, then it's like, oh, okay, this is one of my tools now. Absolutely. You know? Because you've, mm -hmm. you've proven it out there in the world for all of us. So it's very powerful what you're offering and providing. Very, very important. Because I think all of us want and need all of the same things from when we were kids and now that we're adults and now in the relationships that we want to have. And so what your organization is doing is, is bringing to the conscious forefront what is there in just instinctual instinctively for all of us. Um, so I just have so much respect and appreciation for what you're doing. Um, well, that's exciting. It, it, I think the, the other thing I would um, just maybe add to that is that um, I, I think you're, you're really accurately characterizing the sort of personal views of a lot of the, um, especially um, educators and out-of-school time program staff we work with, and to some extent, uh, uh, parents too. We, we, our work with families is always through a youth serving organization like a school or a youth program or sometimes public housing or something, a community center. Mm. Um, but, but definitely for people who basically their job is working with kids, they, they have the kind of instinctive um, appreciation for relationships that you just described. And our work does, you know, it, it, it affirms, it gives them a language, it helps them be more intentional. The other thing I think, though, that we're finding is that the paradox is, even though many of the people in those schools and programs personally 
got into working with kids because of the the, the belief in relationships. Um, the organizations where they work often paradoxically emphasize relationships far less than mm. things like the quality of the curriculum or the quality of the program, yeah. um, or the relationship is not resourced. Kid, they're not given time to build the relationships with kids, especially not the kids who are need the most support. Mm. Um, they're not given professional development on how to build those relationships. They're never given data on relationships. They're not given practical tools or resources. Um, relationships maybe, for instance, are not even included in the um, evaluation of who they hire, um, or nor are they fairly included in evaluations of performance you know, while you're in the job. Um, and so relationships, even though the people in these organizations that serve kids uh, often have very, they're very deeply committed to relationships, the places where they work sort of treat relationships as something that will happen right. kind of when, every, right. when everything else gets done. Right, right. And, and we're saying, no, it's actually, again, it's not way more important than the other stuff, but it's as important right. than the other stuff. Right, it's and all so, connected, and, yeah. Yeah, and you got to make space for it because yeah. we know how crazy busy um, people are. And so making space for serious work on relationships means something's got to give. Like if you're going to do professional development on relationships, you might do less on the reading strategy um, one year. But, you know, there's only so many hours of the day and only so many dollars in the budget. And if you take relationships seriously, um, there's got to be investment in, uh, in bringing them to life. Again, not just any relationship, a developmental relationship for kids. Got it. But then take that time for the relationships and the, the reading will very likely be a lot more, lessons will be a lot more smooth and uh, forward motion for them. That's emphatically our early conclusion as well. <laughs> um, we can definitely show that the, gr the grades are way better. Test scores, um, not so much like a small effect, but that kind of makes sense if you think about it, because a test really is capturing a particular mastery of content knowledge, where right. a grade is, is capturing your content knowledge, but also your work habits, your motivation, your interpersonal interaction, stuff like that. So yes, when kids experience those relationships with their teachers, their academic motivation is much higher, their motivation yeah. to learn, um, and their, their grades are better. Yeah. And a little, a little impact of the test score thing. We're going to keep looking at test scores, but that is not where we expect to find the biggest impact of the teacher-student relationship. Right. But then also for the teacher, I mean, you either enjoy going there into that room and being with those kids or you don't. And when you develop those relationships, guess what? It's a two-way thing. You know, you're all. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you about, because we're not even touching on something that I really wanted to touch on, but there's two other things I want to ask you about. And I guess we'll just keep talking if you have the time, do you? Okay. Um, sure. I want to go on a sidetrack here, even though maybe it's not the logical thing to do, but I need to know, how did you get into this? You are so clear in your explanations and your enthusiasm is so, so heartfelt and so intelligent. Where, how did, where, where did you come from? <laughs> no, that's really, well, first of all, that's very kind of you. Uh, I feel like at age, at age 52, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow uh, up. <laughs> um, I, uh, my, my career really in a weird way has been between research and practice and policy. So I was a, I was a teacher and I was administrator, but I also started a consortium at a university and I worked in DC at the department of education and at the state level. Um, and, and for me, um, sort of this, this, this reality realization, I mean, that, um, in at least the United States, those three parts of the triangle, meaning practice, what what especially teachers do directly with kids. But again, I've come uh, during my years at Search Institute just to, to have a great appreciation for out-of-school time programs. Mm -hmm. um, so people in that sector too. So the practice that they do is so often disconnected from research. There's very little through line right. from research. Right. Um, and, and that doesn't have to be that way. I mean, uh, my friends who are physicians and nurses and, and researchers in healthcare, say that sometimes I make it sound a little too utopian, but the fact is there is a direct through line yeah. from clinical, tr clinical trials that are being done in universities and in labs and what your local doctor, nurse, or physician's assistant is, is, is injecting into you or, or, or how they're examining yeah, you. Good point. There is yeah. a con there's a continuing through line 
in healthcare uh, from research practice and in education and in out of school time, we lack that. And then the policy piece is even more remote. Um, we frequently have policies made that are divorced from both research and exactly. practice. And so I've been interested in doing these things. The, the more personal answer to your question really was that I was a, a young dad and my um, first wife, Tanya, was diagnosed when we had a brand new baby with terminal breast cancer. And so while she yeah. fought that disease um, bravely for two and a half years, I found myself with a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old and was a single dad for six years before I got remarried to Katie and added some stepkids to a bigger family. But um, both during Tanya's fight with the disease and then in those six years afterward, um, long story short, as a parent, I just came to see that despite the fact that in many, many of those years, I was kind of hanging on by my own fingertips, um, uh, just, you know, personally, um, given all the challenges, mm -hmm. the best thing I could do was build those developmental relationships with my kids, though I didn't have that language at the mm -hmm. time. Um, and it had to be a developmental relationship because, I mean, even though they had lost their mom, if I basically just sort of stopped pushing them, um, it, it, I might have, because I felt bad for them, um, I wasn't setting them up for long-term success. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I saw as many people who've been in a situation like I was in have seen how the people in your family, your community, your kids' schools, um, after school programs, early childhood programs, they just, they just, they step up and mm -hmm. they become these forces in your kids' lives. And so when I started as a teacher and administrator, we, we never really talked about relationships at all. And um, I mean, in my undergrad, master's, and doctorate, I never had anything about relationships. Yeah. Um, and yet in my personal life, they all had, it, it was so clearly illustrated that that's why I'm happy to say that, you know, despite having lost their mom at a very young age, my kids are, are doing very well. And so I got to Search Institute in 2012, this wonderful little nonprofit perched in Minneapolis that's been around for 60 years wow. now, and just, dis and discovered that, um, that, we had a, a good shot at trying to bridge those three parts of the triangle that I was just talking about seem so often disconnected, meaning bridging research to practice. And now we're just in the beginning stages of policy. Like what, what could you do in a school district or a state, or even maybe at some point nationally to um, integrate developmental relationships into the policies that we put in place to try and improve outcomes for mm -hmm. kids. We're, we're just beginning to figure that one out mm -hmm. too, but, but the kind of a hopeful thing is that we get asked about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the policy aspect of this work? And we sort of say, that's a good question. What do you think about mm -hmm. this policy aspect of this work is? We know what it's not. I mean, the most easy example of it is the, the federal no, no Child Left Behind law, which seems like it's a long time ago, but it really shaped the country's educational system for a decade. Mm -hmm. And you could think a long time about, you could talk a long time about the good things or the bad things that that law did. But one thing that's clear is it, it there was nowhere in it that relationships were remotely mentioned. And yet it sought, and yet it sought to make dramatic improvements in the educational outcomes of um, kids on the wrong side of the achievement gap. Right. And we just know from research that unless there is a, a deep investment in relationships, um, that was not going to happen. But literally for an entire decade, the entire country talked about closing achievement gaps and there was no reference to <laughs> developmental relationships or anything right. like that. Right. I mean, and that's not so long ago that it's ancient history. Not at um, all. And, and so when we think about improving outcomes for kids, whatever the area is that we're trying to emphasize, like, you know, whether it's college success or reducing the dropout rate or uh, closing uh, you know, gaps in reading ability, um, or, or increasingly preparing uh, people for success in the workplace, um, the relational element of the work that we do with kids just can't be an afterthought. Um, it's got to be a subject of, right. of all three parts of that triangle, research, practice, and policy. Right. There's just too many problems that the kids today are going to be inheriting. They've got to have all kinds of those uh, internal skills of relating and uh, collaborating and thinking skills and independent uh, problem solving and collaborative problem solving, all those things that I'm sure that we could go into. But um, 
I wish kind of that I had started with this, but hopefully people are still listening and, and they will find that it's, uh, this part is really relevant too. There are people at home, families, teachers, and everybody with their kids. And your organization, even uh, you were talking about helping families and working with families. And maybe you have some practical uh, guidance, insight, fun suggestions, whatever you want to share with us about this COVID-19 time when we're all just hanging out together. Yeah, it's really an extraordinary um, moment. So let me um, just give a couple of uh, quick resources and then I will share a few specific ideas. Okay. One, um, if you go, uh, if you Google Keep Connected, okay. um, it's a website that we have created for um uh, parents, parenting adults. And so it has got a ton of stuff that's there about developmental relationships in general. Okay. Um, and um, you, you get that easily if you Google, like, Keep Connected Search Institute. The other thing is, um, if you go to our website, you also will see a new tool called Relationships Check. And it, it, it's a short assessment that you can take um, that is focused on this moment that, as you and I are talking in this podcast, we're all living through, which is the um, quarantining uh, at home where you have parenting adults with their kids. And Relationships Check will help you assess how much attention you're paying to all of the, the relational elements in our framework. And then you'll get approaches and activities that you can use with your own kids, or if you're a teacher or a, you know, out of school time program staff person, you can use via technology um, with those kids. So mm. um, those are a couple of resources, keep connected and others. If you're gonna sort of talk about, you know, a number of the things that would be like really useful for parents um, for expressing care, explicitly tell them that you believe in them and you know they are going to get through this and move on with learning and growing. We find a lot of the people who kids uh, experience as the most highly relational, um, uh, just say the stuff that other people probably think, but they don't make it explicit. Right. And say, you're going to get through this. You're really going to do this. For challenge growth, um, you know, while you're home with your kids during this crazy time, ask them to set one personal goal for what they want to actually um, get better at or achieve during their time away from school and when their time they're with there and let it be a goal that really matters to them. But really say, you know, I want to get better at um, doing something, learning something, achieving something, um, and then really, really help them stick with it, um, and, you know, and monitor it. Mm -hmm. For providing support, you know, again, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, um, some people do instinctively, but our studies have shown uh, many people don't and just assume that the kids know that they think this mm -hmm. way. Ask how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Ask how they're feeling about themselves, about the world, and about their future. Those are the big three um, during this coronavirus crisis that we're all living mm -hmm. through. Um, and once you, you get, and of course, I know if they're teenagers, they're not going to probably in most cases give you like a big, long <laughs> monologue and tell you a bunch of stuff. Um, but especially if you're authentic and asking the question and you're persistent, um, they'll give you nuggets. And some mm -hmm. kids will, will, will give you a, a volume of thinking. Um, and once they do it, make sure that you make clear, I heard you. Mm -hmm. and, when you and go back afterward, mm -hmm. meaning after that mm -hmm. conversation, and ask if they're still feeling that mm -hmm. way or check in on mm -hmm. them. Kids interpret adults who follow up on a conversation with them as um, much more invested in caring in them than someone who even has a good conversation once that seems very connected, but then they never actually follow up on it. Beautiful point. In terms we all feel that way. Sharing, oh. We totally yeah. do. And sharing power, give the kids some voice and choice. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is rather than mandating a single option, give the kids two or three to choose from. Um, they can be three very close options. It can be for what to have for dinner, or it can be what time to do your chores, or it can be fill in the blank, but give kids um, some voice and choice. And then, you know, and the last one in our, in our framework is expanding possibilities. And I think that the biggest thing there would be say, take advantage of this time when you're at home with your kids to have them try something new. Have them try something that actually, you know, watching a movie with you, reading a book, um, uh, eating something that is totally out of the norm. And that's valuable partly just because it does expand possibility, show them something new, but it also just breaks what is uh, a, a very um, unavoidable monotony of being yeah. kind of encamped at home. Yeah. Um, find something unexpected to um, inject some new 
uh, even if they hate it, but uh, <laughs> uh, at least at least you get points for trying. You do. So. And there's something about that intention that, you know, maybe they'll act like they hate it, but, you know, you'll hear about it years later. I didn't really hate right. it, Mom. <laughs> right, right. Oh, right. I love that. I love those pointers. So practical. Um, well, uh, I don't want to let you go. What a genius you are. What a gift you are to this country, to this world. Um, no, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> we're, we are an organization that learns uh, from people uh, and from young people themselves. Yes. And so we kind of are just we're kind of a, a conduit for those things. Yeah. And so it's, it's really been awesome to have a chance to give a little glimpse of our work to your listeners and um, to uh, take some good ideas with me back to work into our studies. <laughs> Well, I'll be thinking about this conversation for a long time. Thank you so much, Kent. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm going to think of 1,200 more questions, so maybe this won't be the last <laughs> time we ever talk, okay? That sounds okay, good. Kent. I love it. Thank, thank, All right, thanks thank so you. much. The clarity with which Kent unpacked the elements of developmental relationships expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, sharing power and expanding possibilities was gratifying and greatly encouraging. Don't you agree? Everything he explained makes perfectly good sense. I mean, we know all of those things, yet now we have a clear and precise framework. So intentionally implementing those five main categories will be much more likely to consistently occur, I feel. You can download a PDF copy of the Developmental Relationships Framework in either English or Spanish or both, and you can learn more about how to support the relationship-building efforts of your school, your after-school, and even your own home life at the website www.search-institute.org. You'll find a wonderful wealth of tools and resources there, many of them free. As always, I love and appreciate your comments, and I greatly appreciate it when you take the time to rate this podcast and give a quick review on Apple Podcasts. Life is good, especially when we're all growing together.